0: Well, good morning. My name is Darren Smith, and I am the pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church. It's good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as we are continuing our study of what we've entitled The Story of New Beginnings, Part 5, here in the first half of Nehemiah, Chapter 5 of God's Word in the Bible. Hey, if you're new to us, uh, thank you so much for just checking us out. Uh, Our website is TowerViewKC.com. We'd love for you to just peruse through that, look through that, and let us know if you have any questions or concerns or comments that we can address or help you with. Uh, Especially if you're not a Christian, I just want to point out, I don't often do this, but uh, if you go to our website, towerviewkc.com, at the very top there's a link that says The Gospel, and we would really encourage you, ask you to look through that. That literally is life's most important information you could ever have. If you're a regular attender, if you're a regular watcher, uh, a member of Tower of View, welcome again as we go through this time. I want you to hear the word of the Lord this morning. This isn't man's word, this is God's word. This is Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1-13, through 13, as we continue our study of this uh, unique time of history in God's providence and, and plan for the nation of Israel, and especially the man Nehemiah. And we'll just pick it up in verse 1 here in Nehemiah 5, reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are so many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And verse 3, There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, verse 5, Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children, yet we are forfeiting our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of the daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother." And I held a great assembly against them, verse 8, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, verse 9, Nehemiah speaking, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts and of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Verse 11, return to them this day, very day, their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then, verse 12, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. And verse 13, Nehemiah says, I also shook it out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Thank you for joining us again. After we pray, we'll get straight into our sermon as we study this, the fifth installment of the story of New Beginnings here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunities we have. Father. As we continue the study of your word, Lord. It is your word. These aren't just uh, stories and, and great historical accounts Father, your spirit inspired these words. They are relevant to us. They they, they point us back to who you are and what you've done and how in history your faithfulness has been shown through your people despite opposition. There's so many lessons. So, Father, as we listen today, may our ears both physically and spiritually be open to what you would say to us. May you convict us. May you comfort us. May you challenge us. May you draw us and illuminate our hearts by your spirit. Father, move me out of the way. May you speak your word this morning. We thank you and we praise you. We ask this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, when the enemy is not without, when the enemy is not surrounding you, we quickly find one within. Even in our own history here in America, we find this to be true. In the Revolutionary War time, the colonies had no problem uniting against Britain. But as soon as the war were over, war was over, the small colonies complained that the large ones were overtaking them. And the big ones complained that they had to pay the lion's share of the debt from the war, while the small ones could hardly even uh, pitch in a little bit. During World War II, an entire country in America mobilized to fight the evils of Hitler and Japanese fascism, a common enemy. Then in the 1950s, a united America fought against a uh, communist North Korea then the 60s and 70s came, and there were divisions, and there were riots, and there were callbacks of all sorts of things. And almost 20 years ago this year, in just about eight months from this recording, in 9-11-2001, we were all united after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. But I would say, and I think we would all agree in our hearts, at least in America, we are, uh, we are now more divided, perhaps, than we ever have been, or at least in recent memory. You see, the eternal opposition didn't come in a moment. It was already there. And so it was with Nehemiah. There were cracks already in the foundation of these people in Jerusalem. The walls were cracked. The foundation was cracked. But the people were even worse off spiritually and physically. They just overshadowed what was not important. But now all those cracks, these internal struggles, these internal injustices, the inequalities, they're now erupting. And Nehemiah, God's man, who's been called from Persia back to his homeland, has to deal with it. He now seeks to accomplish from within what they couldn't do themselves. You would think that all the opposition from without would get some relief. You you would think that all the pressure they've had from all the nations telling them and threatening them and ridiculing them, as we saw last week. But now he must put a division to rest within the own people of God who are there. And it could unravel all they've already done and more for years to come. And so our question today is simply, how do we handle times like this? When when there are negative situations and positive situations, how do we go forward in God's strength, especially with those in the household of faith, other Christians, other believers, together? Well, the big idea today is simply this. is that if you're a Christian, you've confessed with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead, you've turned from your sin, You've trusted Him alone. If you're a Christian, you're my brother or sister, and the blood of Christ He's more powerful than whatever may threaten to divide us. So we need to refuse to treat like trash, and I use that word intentionally, those whom the Lord Himself embraces. For how we treat our fellow Christians will show, according to 1 John and many other places, whether we really are part of God's kingdom, part of Christ. So in Nehemiah 5, we see two negative and two positive situations, how God works through these things for His glory to bring His people closer to Him and also closer to each other. I want you to see the first situation here. I want you to see in verses 1 to 6 the great cry, the great cry. We read that, and you, you noted there were three groups of people that, that began to cry out. As all this wall is being built up, we, they were building the wall in chapter 3. Uh, they were dealing with some opposition in chapter 4. But now these people are crying out. The first group of people you see with this great cry are the men and women and the poor. And Nehemiah highlights the women and the involvement in this outcry. The rich had very little regard for them. And Nehemiah highlights that the, the, the wives wasn't just a national problem, but it was the domestic life of the people. In those days, and I would argue even in today's society, the husbands couldn't go out to provide for their families at home. And it made strife at home in the family. But then come alongside them are the poor. They had nothing to eat while the rich were getting larger and the rich were getting richer. And so you have these people saying, with our sons and our daughters, let us get grain that we may be eat and keep alive, especially during this famine. And so the first group to cry out are, are just those who are, who are less prominent in the community. But the second group of people here with a great cry is that they had in verse 3 property that had to be mortgaged to afford to eat. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine refinancing your home just to go to the grocery store? I mean, it's probably a drought so that they had enough income to buy grain, to plant seed, and feed their families. But it's not something that happened overnight. It had been there again all along. But now it came to the forefront. And the third group, not the poor, the wise, or the mortgaging people, But in the third group in verse 4, they've borrowed large sums of money to pay taxes. They've borrowed money to pay off taxes. Now, historically, we know in the ancient world, even despite the Romans and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, the Persians were a very tax-heavy kingdom. In fact, they were probably historically one of the most tax-heavy kingdoms around. They did a lot of building, a lot of restoration. That's how they could afford to do the walls in Jerusalem. So, the problem, though, is is that some literally had to sell their kids into debtor slavery to work off these debts. That was a thing. And in verse five, you see that word daughters, and, and 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 you get the picture here. They had to sell their kids into some type of uh, of prostitution. I, I can't even imagine what that must have been like to pay off their debts, folks. It was a crazy time. It was a super crazy time. But the shocking part is found in verse five: is that those and you notice that at the end of verse five. It says, now, uh, yes, uh, but it's not our power to help, for other men have our fields and our vineyards and those sorts of things. And those who now owned their lands and children were their brothers. They didn't know this to some creditor back in the citadel of Susa, where Nehemiah came from in chapter 1. It wasn't hundreds of miles away. These were their own brothers and sisters in the faith or at least in the ethnic jewish community that were holding them ransom pure selfishness they had ceased to care for their own brothers and sisters for their own gain and their own wealth friends it is a reminder to us during this great cry that we can be busy building a wall like these people, or we can be busy doing kingdom work, we can be busy doing churchy, Christian, Jesus-like things, yet we can neglect our own hearts. It's a good warning to not let the work of the heart be taken away from what you're trying to accomplish for God. These people thought they were doing the work of God, but in essence, they, you can do the work of the kingdom and be very far from God as these ones who owned, if you will, the, the, the children and the, the mortgaging and, and all the things that were happening here. But I think you notice also here that forsaking our brothers and sisters in God is, is essentially forsaking God himself. He's mad, Nehemiah is, because of what they are doing. He's not mad because what they're doing to each other. That is a problem, but more so it's because it's a sin against God himself. I mean, Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 25. It's, he speaks about his return in judgment. When he returns, he will take all people. He'll put the sheep, those who believe in him, and that's an image for those who believe in him, on his right, and the goats, that's an image of those who don't believe him, on his left. And he'll tell those who are the sheep, the believers, and I'm summarizing here, but he'll say, come, you who are blessed, inherit the kingdom. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me, and you visited me in prison. And Jesus says these things to the sheep, and the sheep say back to him, the believers say back to him, well, when did we ever do these things? But he says it opposite to the goats, those who think they're religious, those who think they're in the faith. He says, depart, for you're cursed, because you did not feed me. You did not give me a drink. You did not visit me. You did not clothe me. And this is a picture of what Jesus was speaking about here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Forsaking the people of God is to forsake God himself. And they were doing this in Jerusalem. They were thinking very little about the brothers and sisters in uh, the faith or the nation, but they saw their poverty as something to enrich themselves. They saw it as a capitalistic, to use an economic term, as a as a money making opportunity at the expense of other people. Ezekiel 22 decries what is called here is as exacting as as revving up the interest, revving up the opportunity to make money. He says in Ezekiel 22 kind of summarizing here, God says you take interest and make profit and gain by extortion, but God says but you have forgotten me, says the Lord. They had forgotten how because they had forgotten his people. And so God so identifies with his people that as we treat his people and how we treat one another is tantamount of how we are treating God himself. May we treat each other, Tower View Church members, other Christians watching, and remember it matters greatly. Your enemy is not your brother or sister in Christ. Your enemy is not someone who is walking faithfully with God. You may have disagreements at times. You may not see eye to eye like like Paul and Barnabas did at times. But at the end of the day, we do not do what is happening here. We encourage, we pray for, we seek to serve and put others' interests, Philippians 2, before ourselves as Christ did ours on the cross when he died for us. But the situation is awful, and there is a great cry, and that is the negative situation. The threats from without, from Sanballat, from Tobiah, from the uh, Tekoites, from the Arabs, all those people trying to surround these Jews and pressure them not to build the wall can also happen within. And the threats from within usually unravel the church while the things on the outside, those threatening us because of our faith, serve to make it stronger. So there's a great cry. I want you to see secondly in verses 6 and 7, there is great leadership. This is a positive thing. There's great leadership in verses 6 and 7. You notice in verse 6 that Nehemiah responds in at least two or three ways here. First, he gets angry. Haven't we seen that before with Nehemiah? He gets angry. He says, I was very angry when I heard this outcry. And you would be too. You should be. You're, if your heart doesn't see this as injustice, you got, you got some other problems going on in there. He wasn't angry for himself but for those who had been hurt. He was not looking to his own interests. he was mad about what happened. Ephesians 4 tells us to be angry and do not sin but Nehemiah reminds us here that he was justified in his anger. There is a right anger. I mean there are times Christian when you should get angry. We should be peaceable, peaceable but not soft. There are times to get mad. There are times with a holy, righteous fervor to get mad. I mean, didn't Jesus get mad with the religious leaders because they were leading the people falsely? He got mad when he walked into the temple and saw them inhibiting, preventing, and modifying the worship of the true God. He got mad. What Jesus did with the demons that made the man cut the made the man the uh, uh, the man in uh, Gethsemane who, who who cut himself and would throw himself into the fire, and he got so mad at those demons, he did whatever it was. He, Patrick Mahomes threw those demons into the pigs, man. He got rid of them. There are times to get angry, and it's always when people are being injured or suffered wrongly, or above all, that God's name is being uh, drugged through the mud in an unholy way. And so this great leadership, he shows incredible self-control and he doesn't let his righteous zeal, his righteous anger, without knowledge. So what does he do secondly? He gets angry first with this great leadership, but another positive thing he does, he slows down. Now I know, and and Pastor Nelson, if he were doing this sermon, could, could probably take this on a good biblical rabbit trail with much more detail, but we often look at people funny when they talk to themselves. We often look at people funny when they are talking out loud and no one's around. And we don't see that Nehemiah talked out loud to himself, but he does talk to himself, probably internally, but who knows, maybe he said it externally to calm himself down. But this is what he did, verse 7. He said, I took counsel with myself. He's not going to be controlled by that raw anger, righteous as it may be, the emotion. And yet, as parents discipline kids, as a wife rebuking a husband, as a challenge, as a roommate, or as an employee to an employer, or an employer to an employee, or a church elder before a church member, we should do well, would do well here to think and pray before we speak. We would do well to do like Nehemiah, and to take our time and really think it through, to pray about it. This is what he did. Nehemiah always went to in chapter 2 and, in, and even in chapter 4 when, when they were doing all these things against him, Nehemiah just stopped in the moment and prayed. And it doesn't say he prayed here. It says he took counsel with himself. But knowing his track history, it's very likely that he prayed a silent prayer to God. We don't know how long that was or what words were said, but his leadership was great because he knew there was injustice. He knew God's name was being drugged through the mud yet he stuck in it with self-control. He had a righteous anger, he was controlled to counsel with himself, but notice verse 7, he must have been a good Baptist. For in verse 7, he calls a meeting. He calls a meeting. I know uh, it sounds odd to do that, and he said, I held a great assembly against them. He had to think about this first. He calls a meeting, and he we'll get into it in the in the next point but he charges and confronts them in this meeting he sees the outcry he gets angry as he should he takes counsel with himself probably praying to god for wisdom and the next step in his mind is we got to settle this right now so he does christian i would pray that whatever problem comes your way those are the steps you might take nehemiah is a flawed man nehemiah is a sinner but in god's providence and the scripture we see this as a not as a formula, not as a a three steps to success kind of thing, but as an example for us to see how we might engage this world spiritually and physically. Look, look around our country. Look around our world. It should smash our hearts like it did Paul when he was disturbed in his spirit in Acts 17 when he went through Athens because he was just so just disgusted about what he saw. Look, We should be disgusted that we've let 65 million babies die in our nation, and it continues to grow. We should be disgusted that churches are more worldly than they are Christian. We should be disgusted with our own sin and all these things. But may we do so in a way that honors Christ. May we seek to take that righteous anger, to pray about the wisdom about what the words and actions behind that look like, and if possible, if necessary, take the practical steps to solve it. That's what Nehemiah teaches us. It was great leadership in the midst of a great cry. But thirdly, I want you to notice not only a great cry, great leadership, but notice in verses eight to eleven a great loss, a great loss. So in verse eight, he's not going to allow. Nehemiah is not waiting for the next scheduled quarterly business meeting. Nehemiah is not waiting until everyone gives the thumbs up on a Facebook Messenger group that this is going to work. He people are suffering, and as the leader, he wants to possess the chance. Uh, to, to not let this undo the work that is happening before them. Nehemiah is not willing to separate from the work of the Lord from the people of the Lord. He's not content with, well, you gave your time to God here, but just just I, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to the things back here. No. He sees these two things go hand in hand. They, they go together. He doesn't neglect the people for the work. Because the work is all about the people. They're trying to build this wall physically to establish a defense strategically and and against enemies that may attack. So he takes quick action. And he points out to them. He basically says, I'm going to summarize this in simple terms. He, he, He basically calls them out. He says, guys, you're working the system. You're participating in a slave trade of these people in God's name. And the city was apparently taking taxes to buy people, but making a profit. It's just a big circle. It's it's a Ponzi scheme. It's it's just this this type of, of situation where one thing seems to be a noble thing, but in the end, the people being noble are actually the ones making the most profit. So no matter how you slice and dice it, Nehemiah says, guys, you're sinning, you're wrong, especially because these are God's people. These are your brothers and sisters, And all the while they're doing this, they're selling them into slavery, and they're using tax money to do it. And the desire for money will always jade or confound our morality. This is why in 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells in the Old King James, and I think the uh, the translation could be more uh, accurate here, perhaps with an updated version. Uh, That'll upset all my Presbyterian friends, I'm sure. But it says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Friends, money will do that to you. But I also want you to get here that they're charging massive interest. And there's nothing wrong with charging interest. The law of Moses allowed for this. But usury, exacting, adding on, you know, almost in a modern-day sense, like those payday loan places like, hey, I need $1,000 to pay this bill. Okay, uh, give me your title, give me your driver's license, whatever you got. And, oh, by the way, we're going to slap on their uh, 30 20% interest on top of that. and It's due in eight weeks, and so we're going to send you to collection. They were just harming their brothers and sisters, but they again were offending God. And he tells them to return everything. And what he had to say at this meeting was crucial. And he presents several facts here. I want you to walk through with me how he does this. In verse 8, he at first starts appealing to their conscience. He says, we, as far as we are able, have bought back. He reminds them, he reminds them that these aren't just slaves, but these are people. He wants that conscience to be pricked. And this is exactly how we are to take evangelism. You have sinned against the Holy God. You you have offended him. But secondly, he appeals to love. He says brothers in verse 8. And one of the most alarming aspects of this was that they are united together under God. But again, they're taking advantage of that relationship. And Nehemiah's words, Open the eyes of the offenders and touch their consciences and rob them of any attempt to justify their conduct because, as we read, they were silent and could not find a way, a word to say. He appeals to conscience. He appeals to love. Thirdly, he, as he takes this great loss before them, he appeals to morality. He said, verse 9, first part of verse 9, he says, So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. He calls a spade a spade. Guys, this is wrong. Stop it. His exposure was not merely designed to make them feel uncomfortable about their lavish lifestyle, but to, before God, confront them with their moral obligations, especially as leaders, to have a good and just society that honors Christ, honors God. So he appeals further, fourthly here, to their theology. And I think this is the home run here. He, he hits it out of the park. He says in verse 9, in the end of verse 9, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? It's not just that it's a bad thing, but this is against God. There's a higher audience. There's a higher authority, a higher court to which you will answer someday. And Nehemiah appeals to their knowledge of God's character, that he sees everything, that he knows everything, that he is God and he will judge everything. And non-Christian friend, I just want to appeal to you on that as well. You may think that nobody knows those things you think or the thoughts deep in your heart or the, the, the God does. His eyes are everywhere. God beholds the evil and the good, Proverbs 15 tells us. You need to do what these leaders did and return and repent and trust in the Lord for his forgiveness. But he takes it a little bit further. This is kind of implied at the end of verse 9. He appeals to Scripture. It's possible that Nehemiah may have wanted to remind his his, uh, hearers in this great assembly of a specific Old Testament passage. We don't have it. It's not quoted directly. But the language he uses is strikingly reminiscent of the Lord's commands concerning the year of Jubilee. And that's a whole other study, but that's something that is in the text. But then he appeals to the testimony. The offenders must rectify the social injustice, because did you see what he said? Not only have you sinned, it's just bad. No matter who you are, this is, you just don't do this. But then it's theology, it's God. You've offended God. But third. It's an appeal to testimony. Your witness has been blown and put in Christian terms. He says, we do this to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. Christian, you have been saved by God's grace because he loved you. He loved his son. That was his plan. But you're to be an ambassador for him. And your life speaks either positively or negatively to the grace of God in your life. And part of your calling as a Christian is to prevent, end of verse 9 here, the taunts of the nations of our enemies. Your life, my life, is to be such an example that even despite our sin, that others could look at us and say, wow, that's a difference, and I wonder why. And Israel had been called to be a light to the nations and the Gentiles, and in doing these things, these people had turned their brothers and sisters into what I said of the big idea earlier, into trash. Then in verse 10, he appeals to their experience. Nehemiah does not deal with the situation as a detached observer. ...advantage of our fellow Christians. We don't take advantage of the poor for our own gain, even generally. A blow to the body of Christ is a blow to the body of Christ. You'd expect A little bit of opposition. But notice, Nehemiah gets none. He's going to require great loss of those who profited. But the great loss does not deter them. Let me remind you of where we've been. There was a great outcry. The wives, the children, the poor, the mortgage people, those who sold their kids to slavery. There was leadership. Nehemiah got angry. He controlled himself. He took counsel before the Lord with himself. He called a meeting. And here he runs them through a whole list of appeals. That was the great loss. But it ends on a high note. There in verses 12 and 13, lastly here, there is a great response. There is not only a great loss, there is not only um, a great leadership, there is not only a great cry, but there is a great response. Notice verses 12 and 13, especially verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. Amen. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Oh boy, if one church would pick this up and do what God said to do, what a world of difference it would make in this world we live in. All the people did it. What a picture. That's a wow factor there. All the nation, all the wealthy, all the poor, from every walk of life in the city, in opposition against each other and harming one another, now come together with one voice and say, "Amen." Nehemiah did not threaten them. Nehemiah did not say, "I'm going to call the Persian king and the soldiers that detached with me to to, to rough you up." He didn't. He didn't threaten them like his outside enemies did. He simply explained the situation. He took them before the morality. He, expe- he appealed to theology, he appealed to scripture, he appealed to experience, he appealed to the greater good, he appealed ultimately before God himself. That's all he did. And he let God do the work. Nehemiah could not change their hearts as we can change anyone else's heart. Only God can do that. But you notice there at this, this, this great uh, response, they began to praise God. And this is what we're called to do. The people of God are called out by God to give praise to God. And they do this with unity. The people of God are called out by God to give praise to God. And when there is disunity, dysfunctioning in our ranks or in our midst, it interrupts that praise. I've said publicly before in our church and in our our private communications, our church during this COVID time has been vastly united. Yes, we disagree even on things in this culture about how to do this best or should we do this or should we do that. But when we disregard or have disregard for one another, it interrupts the praise God has for us. When we don't meet needs, it interrupts that praise. That's why I praise God for our deacons. This is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 6 when the deacons first came on the body of Christ. There was fighting between the Grecian Jews and the, the Hellenistic Jews and they were... Uh, or the the Hellenistic and Greek Jews are the same, excuse me, and the Jewish Jews, if you will, about the the distribution of food. And, And they called together men who were willing to serve, and Stephen was one of those. And they helped remove some of the barriers of those people to get the food out physically so they could be free and full to worship spiritually. But it's not just the duty of deacons, but the whole of us as the people of God deacons lead us in service scripturally, 1 Timothy 3 and other passages, and provide an example like Nehemiah to care for the least of these. We are the beneficiaries, guys, also of a God who did this. We were destitute. We were forsaken. We were forgotten. We were lonely. We were the least of these. Yet God, in His great grace, sent forth His Son into the world to carry our burden, which is our sin debt, our offenses to God. We have offended this holy, righteous God. We have had high-handed rebellion against him. And yet we are free now to worship because of him. If you're not a Christian, the only thing I can say is this is that Nehemiah's leadership is great in the midst of this outcry and all this great response, even through the great loss and all those things. But ultimately, the ultimate truth is this. Nehemiah is like a type of Christ, if you will. Nehemiah is not the Savior. Nehemiah is sinful. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus was not sinful. But foreshadowing what was to come, Nehemiah leads us here. And friend, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. God came into this world. He took on flesh. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you and I should have died. He bore the wrath of God. He took our place. He took the punishment for our sin. He was buried, and three days later, he busted out of that grave, and he was resurrected. What a picture of the triumph of our Savior. And we see a glimpse of that through the life and ministry of Nehemiah. If you're not a Christian, message us after you listen to this. Drop us a note. You know, Call or text us, 816-368-1330. We won't usually drop phone numbers in sermons, but it's relevant to you. Let us know. Christian, I just want to remind you as we close that we are to care for one another. We are to seek to help one another. We are to look to the interest of one another. We are to bear the burdens of one another so that we all together can say amen. So we can freely and fully worship God. Because remember, if you're a Christian, you are my brother and sister in Christ. And the blood of Christ is more powerful than whatever may threaten to divide us. So let us refuse to treat like trash those whom the Lord himself embraces. For how we treat fellow Christians will show if we belong to Christ. To our friends, family, this is why we pray for other churches on a regular basis. This is why we take our time to reach out to other pastors to say, Hey, you know, uh, I know we don't fellowship directly, but but we love you guys. We're, in, we're on the same team. We're in the body of Christ. How can we help you? How can we pray for you? This is why in our church we also have a prayer calendar with all the members in our fellowship, and that's given to members only especially, to pray And Judy in the office has done a great job of separating that out. Three last names every day of the month, I think, for for about uh, 95% of the days in a month. Pray for those. You're on our Facebook group, our private Facebook group, Tower View Church Family. Uh, Starting on February 1st, we're going to have a daily post that comes up with those names and some suggestions about how to pray and, and all those things. But We are in this together. We will be in heaven together. So we better act and live like it here. Friends, I'm grateful that Jesus, who was perfectly holy, didn't look at us and say, whew, I could really take advantage of these guys. He humbled himself even to death on a cross for our salvation and the praise of his Father. Let's close as we pray today. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Father, as we close this out, it's it's hard to really see, I think for some, even preparing this message where this comes in because we're not... Together physically, in some ways that we're used to in the many years here at Tower View we've seen together. Yet, Lord, even more so, perhaps now than ever, we're to reach out. We're to be, we are to be doing all that we can to help each other. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask for wisdom to do this to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Again, my name is Darren Smith. On behalf of our staff and church, thank you for joining us. You're welcome anytime on a Sunday morning, 10.30 a.m. Details are on our website, towerviewkc.com. Until next time, we'll talk soon. God bless you, and may uh, you seek him this week as we go through. Thank you again.